Greetings and welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm Jonathan Pritchett, and today I have Nick Quint with me back again for uh, another discussion. We're going to be talking about Paul Steele, but we're going to be talking about uh, egalitarianism. We're going to talk about why we're both egalitarians, why we think that that's the biblical position, and we're going to focus in on a couple of Pauline texts from 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy chapter 2. Nick, how you doing? I'm I'm doing well. I'm juicing up with coffee right now, so this this will be fun. Can't wait to put on my sassy pants and uh, have a All conversation right. about it. Yeah, well, th- there's going to be a lot of sass. We're going to show our sass today. Uh, inevitably, <laughs> that's going to happen with the two of us. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I've I've been look. We've been talking about doing this for a while, uh, and we're finally getting to it. And then uh, heads up, we're talking about also doing. Uh, another thing in the future that we're going to talk about, the household codes in uh, Peter and in Paul's writings in Ephesians First uh, Peter. So look forward to that in the future. And we've also, we've talked about doing a Romans roundtable uh, in the future and, and helping people understand uh, why everybody but us are wrong until we get to uh, Romans chapter seven, then I'll explain why Nick is wrong and he'll explain me why I'm stupid and I should really agree with him there. So um, but other than that, I think we track pretty closely on Romans as well. So I think so. Uh, you and I tend to end up in the same conclusions, not or rather, we have the same method for reading Romans. That may lead to different conclusions because of yeah. who we are, but uh, our our way of reading the text, I think, is very similar. Yeah, and similar to like reading Romans and uh, all the interpretive options when it comes to reading certain texts within the soteriological debates and the justification debates and, and the Calvinism, Arminianism debates and stuff. Uh, one thing that we agree on is no matter how good or outlandish your reading of Romans is, they are all infinitely more probable than Calvinism. And similar to that, no matter what you think of what we're going to say today about uh, certain passages that you th- that uh, our complementarian friends have said are slam dunk texts, I will still assert that even the egalitarian readings that I don't agree with, and some of them I do think are actually ridiculous, are still more plausible than any complementarian reading. Not just in light of its immediate context, but in light of its canonical context, its theological context, its ideological context. When you pick up on the intertextual textures of especially First uh, uh, Timothy chapter 2, going back to Genesis, all of it to me is, and we'll, and, and we'll go through some of that. So first, Nick, why don't you uh, explain to everybody why you're an egalitarian and why they should be an egalitarian as well? Well, I mean, the simple thing is you should be an egalitarian because the Bible says you should be. Uh, Of course, that begs the question of the entire conversation that we'll be having, but I think that'll be fairly substantiated. But for uh, if you are a Christian apologist, you should be an egalitarian because I think the best evidence that supports the historical reality of the resurrection is based on the testimony of women, for example. Um, and you and I joke about uh, Jesus being bankrolled by women. Uh, yes. we, and I don't know what you think about this. I think the, the Joanna of Luke's gospel, who is also a witness to the resurrected Christ, is also the same Junia mentioned by Paul in Romans 16, 7 as an apostle. Highly likely. Highly, Highly likely. likely, yeah. I think I think it's a slam dunk by Bauckham and 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 others. But uh, if that's the case, then you have a direct link between the histor- quote historical Jesus 
and the missional poll. There is a direct link there, and that link is provided to us by the first female apostle named in the New Testament. And so there is a vest, every Christian apologist should be an egalitarian because Paul was. Yeah, and you've written that up, right? You have that on deck to be published somewhere, right? That- uh, I, I'm in talks with a Christian apologetics guy who's a, also a preeminent philosopher to write a shorter, well, short-ish book on that subject. Um, he hasn't responded to my email, but I plan on writing the book anyway. I published it as a blog post a long time ago, and uh, it'll, I'm working on getting it published as an actual book. Now, for the apologists that are watching, where can they find that? Uh, they can't find it because I took it down because I realized that I need to uh, make it a money maker, right? Yeah, basically. Yeah. I want to. I want to make money off it, but I also uh, want to keep my cards close to my chest before I submit it out there. And speaking of all about the money, I'm all about the money, um, and so you can become a patron at uh, patron.com/trinityradio, and you can also be a patron of Nick's podcast, The Split Frame of Reference. I'm a patron there. I don't know what's the what's the address for that. Uh, I think on Patreon, it's just if you look if you put in my name, uh, it'll be one of the two options. You have the synergist that'll probably show up first because that's the more more broadly conceived, well known one. Uh, the split frame of reference one will be right underneath that. So just in Patreon, just put my last name. It should be like one of the first that comes up. Yeah, I don't I don't know if I'm a patron to both or just split frame of reference. Uh, I think just split frame, but that's that's yeah. fine. I, I like I've split frames a little closer to my heart as much right. as I love the synergists, but yeah. Oh, I, I'm a big fan. I just didn't know what I, 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 I'm on, I got several patrons things. I don't pay attention. Yeah. To. I've started doing a lot more patronage stuff too. And it's just like, Oh my gosh, who am I patron of? Right. Who, who's being slighted by me not being their patron. Uh-uh. Right. That's what it comes down to. But uh, yes, you can, you can give to Nick's uh, podcasts, plural uh, as well very worth uh, worthwhile cause you he has a newborn son who's one of the most beautiful baby boys you'll ever see in your life and so you'll go to help feed starving kids if you give to nick's patreon account because yeah, we're gonna have to ship him to, to africa or just some other place if we can't afford to feed him so right. your money will keep uh, keep food in his mouth there you go so because paul was an egalitarian and because of the resurrection of jesus christ the first apostle was a woman or at least one we have an, a woman who is an apostle i mean yeah. some people debate debate the grammar but uh it's one of those things where if if you un, the most natural reading even by most complementarian commentators douglas moo tom schreiner basically can see the fact that she is an apostle they just kind of watered down what apostle means which they wouldn't do if it was paul or barnabas or someone else and so it's right. one of those things where i just kind of go yeah how, who you how you've decided to interpret one of those two texts we'll talk about basically colors everything else. And I think that's just bogus hermeneutics. And, and I, I say the same thing to my egalitarian friends who go, well, Galatians 3.28 teaches us everything else must be subordinated to it. And I'm just kind of like, I, I think scripture is a little more complex and interesting than that. Right. And, and so that, that's, that, that's kind of where, where I come from, you know, in soteriology debates, it's John 3.16 Calvinist, bam, debate over. And I'm like, yeah, don't be that guy. You know, just just don't. and that same way with with, with certain verses uh, in in this d- debate, like the one in Galatians three. So, um, but yeah, it it, it is more interesting. Um, the more you sift through a text, you know, we always talk about 
wrestling with the text. We always talk about, you know, digging deep into the text. Um, some people can be so nuanced that they try to make the text say something it clearly doesn't. I recently have gone through one example of that in my discussion of James chapter two in the last video I did for Trinity Radio. So um, there, you know, sometimes people can think that, oh, you're just trying to get around certain things. Uh, and I've heard that accusation with First uh, Timothy chapter 2, for example, which we'll get to. I want to do First Corinthians chapter 14, 34, and 35 first. Um, try to hit that moving target. We'll get into that as well. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think that that's a legitimate complaint uh, about this. Um, I, I, I have a love-hate relationship with the phrase, the Bible is clear, when somebody says that. Because I always want to say clear to who and clear in what way. Right. Um, and those are a little bit more difficult questions because they'll usually blurt out something that if you actually examine doesn't really, that's not grasping on to the larger issues. So, right. So first Corinthians chapter 14, 34 and 35 is an interesting text. that tells women to shut up and ask their husbands. You know, yep. so, so um, but that text also moves around in certain uh, text uh, manuscript for uh, families. It, it's it's located earlier in the chapter. Uh, it's actually located at the end. It I, it moves. It goes from where it is thirty four and thirty five. Yeah. Or I think it's in, if I recall correctly, and it's eight o'clock in the morning now. It moves. Uh, an entire Western text tradition. So not just some people will say, oh, it's just a few manuscripts. It's like, no, it's the entire Western text tradition places them after verse 40. So the text would read something like, you know, I don't know, uh, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people, um, or did the word of God originate with you? Then you move on to then, but everything yeah. should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Wives, be quiet at home, be quiet and ask your husbands at home. So the, it actually moves as a unit uh, several verses down to the end of the chapter, which uh, anyone who knows a little bit about textual criticism knows when you see verses, not even words, verses moving around like a copy paste kind of thing, uh, that's a sign of textual instability. And every every text critic will, will grant that. And that's one of the main things that we see um, the, the woman caught in adultery or the woman allegedly caught in adultery in the Gospel of John, right? Yeah. That appears in some very late manuscripts like 16th, 17th century in Luke's Gospel. It appears also at the end of John's gospel in chapter 21. It also doesn't exist in early, our, most of our earliest manuscripts in the gospel of John. And so when you see pieces moving as puzzle pieces throughout uh, a, a sequence or a text, our first thought is, okay, something's, there's this text, this, these two verses aren't stable uh, right. where they are, even if they are early, um, and that's, there's debate there. Um, but even if they're early, they're still moving, which means people are a little wary about where they go in the, or if they're original, or at least our earliest text critics seem to kind of be a little uncomfortable with them. Now, but also when that happens, there that opens up a an interesting line of thinking, especially with like uh, John 8, for example. Well, it starts early in John, or late in John 7 and through right. John 8. Um, interesting discussions as to you know, whether or not that's original, it was original and was taken out and why, or it was added in because of certain social reasons and why. Um, what are some of the, the 
the explanations that people give as to why it travels at all and what could have been certain motivations if it was originally there if it was added or if it was added but added like i think you said towards the, i'd always heard that sometimes it's at the early part of the chapter but i i mean uh, I, it may be in very late manuscripts so people may be uh, yeah. but the only the material i've read by by text credit say it gets placed at the end of the chapter and at the end, okay well yeah. you know better than i do on that uh, but why would it be placed at the end moved uh what are some of the um maybe factors that people posit as to why that happens yeah and so with with this question and the reason we're not talking about how to interpret it uh just for people that are watching right now is not because we want to get around it but we every text you have to ask is it the text of the word of god and you have right. to be able to answer that with a uh, a de varying degree of probability probably yes possibly yes possibly no probably no it, just to give kind of a basic kind of spectrum and so you have to establish is this the word of god in order to interpret it uh so that's what we're doing right now if it, i i and so um there are numerous things that are posited there's uh it appears in most of our earliest manuscripts um there are some issues with early manuscripts being involved with um text critical symbols so for example um i mean I, can, I i don't know if i could draw it and people could see it but um you've got what looks like a long bar with two dots so you know you have the like this right my fingertips it looks like that right and that long bar and and uh, i believe it's vaticanus appears at every stage of a widely acknowledged uh, multi-word interpolation that is a, a later insertion into the text and it appears here right where the par where right where this passage speaks and uh vaticanus b is probably our i think it's our oldest greek bible like a complete greek bible and that's fourth century and that's really really early um and this is called the Dystigmai obelus symbol. You can find uh, Philip Payne uh, published uh, an article in New Testament Studies, one of the most preeminent New Testament journals in the world, um, on this symbol and marked and basically argues that it demarcates added text recognized by the scribes. And so it's not just that, oh, this is a Western text thing. It's like, no, it's a very early thing where people were wrestling with this. And there's two reasons why I think people wrestled with it. One was if it is original scribes recognize that it interrupts the, the flow and the discourse of Paul's language. And also it's, it seems intrusive. You just reading it, da, 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 da. What, what, where did this women thing come from? You know, what, why, why is this here? It's just kind of, it breaks context. So for example, if you copy and paste the text, you know, the entire chapter 14 into like a word document and delete those two verses, uh, and you just read it, it flows just nice, you know, so, and so, so, yeah. so let's try that. So for you could all prophesy one by one, I'm reading for the NASB, uh, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. And then you want to skip 34 and 35. Was it from the word of God? first went for, was it from you the word of god first went forth so that would be picking up in this idea of prophets uh yep. you know and, and the spirits is you know all all of that um mm -hmm. coming after as in you know not a god of confusion but of peace as in all the churches of the saints was it from you the word of god first went forth or has it come to you only if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual let him recognize 
uh there's that spiritual <laughs> yeah not a fan of that uh yeah. read fee on this business uh let him yeah. recognize that the things which i write to you are the lord's commandment so it, it yeah it, it it's kind of a parenthetical intrusion there um but it, you can read it without having. So basically, uh, the the point, at least, is some early scribes probably recognized it's abrupt, and that doesn't mean it's not original. But it it does read abruptly, and and there are certain, and that brings up issues of partition theories, say in Second Corinthians and Philippians, about them being multiple documents stitched together. I don't buy that. So I, I think either. rhetorically, I, I think rhetorically that it, you can see shifts in rhetoric. Uh, which actually I would argue are woven throughout the epistle as a whole. So yes. I, I think there are literary factors for that. Here, you don't really see that. You don't see women mentioned at all in, for example, uh, the major sequence or discourse from chapter 12 to chapter 14. Um, you have the gifts of the spirit, you have the many members, you have, and that's another reason why I named Egal, I'm an egalitarian, because I think the Holy Spirit is an equal opportunity employer, if you read Second or First Corinthians chapter 12, and that's yeah. the steel Ben Witherington's phrase. And so, but the gifts of the spirit are given, Without any demarcation, this uh, slaves are really good at um, serving. Uh, women are really good at household management, the gift right. of household management or whatever. There's no, there's no, the spirit doesn't seem interested in that. And so uh, the entire discourse is kind of about that. And so to, int re to introduce the subject of women into it is kind of one of those words, like, okay, where, where is this going? And early scribes recognize that specifically. And also, um, uh, I want to say it's Codex Fuldensis. Um, I could be wrong on that, but but a, a very well-known text critic in the 500s basically recognized that these are probably an interpolation and removed them and put them in the margin of the manuscript. Actually, took them out and put them some and and put them in the in the margin. So basically, you know, you've got oh, this is John Wesley, right? So you've got you know the text here. He would have basically had it rewritten without it and put the mar put the text in the margin here. And the margin, of course, would be a lot bigger, you know, in, in manuscripts and papyrus. Then the copyist like put moved it into the main body by his instruction. Yeah, basically. Yeah. And so the the question then becomes okay. So the, to bring it all back together, thanks for that. Uh, the, the option is this: this was original to the text, meaning it was it was very early on a part of First Corinthians. Yeah. And later scribes recognized that there's an issue here and removed it because they probably recognized two things. One, it's intrusive to the context, so it looks like an interpolation. And two, um, they are following a text tradition that recognized text critical symbols that demarcate an interpolation. And so from the very beginning, people recognized that there was an instability to these verses. Or the other option, and this is, and these are both speculative, I mean, reasonable speculation, but they are speculation because you have to make an inference based on the lack of evidence or, you know, stuff like that. The second reason is it very clearly fits a, a social agenda. And so people argue that the Paul of the pastorals, because they don't, most people don't think Paul wrote the pastorals. I'm, I think I lean towards the fact that he does um, write the pastorals or at least authored them, you know, oversaw them and all that. Yeah. So Paul's, I, I think he I think up. he signed off on the contents that that he he said Luke right say something about all this stuff Luke writes it up says is this cool Paul's like yeah I think I think is that Witherington that, that makes that that case I Witherington think. kind of basic or he at least gives as I recall he's like it's it's a, it's a good plausible case and I'm like yeah it's plausible yeah. I don't know if Luke's involved um, but whoever penned it for Paul uh, Paul at least probably was looking over maybe it was like I don't know. I don't know, looking at TikTok and was like, 
oh yeah uh yeah i'll sign off on that you know just like yeah. he's not it doesn't mean he's not involved in the process but you yeah. know he's old as he says in, in second right. timothy so but the the point is um for some it obviously has a social agenda to silence women and given uh what we know about women's education and general patristic and by i don't mean church father but everyone the patristic era view of women very low uh concerning women's education mental state i mean if you want to read about quote feminine virtues um or if we want to read you know re if you want to know what uh what Christians, or rather people thought of Christian women, read the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas, where Jesus basically says, uh, in order for Mary to go to heaven, she has to be a man. She has yeah. to be made into a man. And so vir virtue, basically, it's, it's even the most ardent complementarian is not a true historical complementarian, quote, complementarian, because true, comp you know, that sort of stuff is all patriarchal. They would reject that, and rightly so, because the whole idea is predicated on the inferiority of women, which most complementarians today, most, not all, uh, if you get on Twitter and listen and say something about it, um, reject it, and rightly so. Yeah. And so uh, for people, it obviously fits a social agenda to silence women. And that's why uh, they would have been inserted. And that's why later copyists would be like, um, no, and they would take and remove it because the language is similar to 1 Timothy, you know, the language of submission, at least in some sense of learning, um, husbands. And, you know, so there, there are linguistic parallels between 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35 and 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 12. I don't think they're so strong as to merit um, a, a, a textual relationship. Um, because yeah. I think First Corinthians fourteen is a is an interpolation. I think it's most plausible. That's the best reading of the evidence. Okay, so we disagree on that. Uh, yeah. I, I think it's original. Um, now I I can see why it could be moved to, to after verse forty because they verse thirty three and verse forty kind of end on the same similar kind of sentiment about the he's not the god of confusion but the god of peace is in all the churches and then a similar sentiment about doing all things in proper order, you know, in an orderly manner, things like that. So I, I see why it would go after 40 there if somebody was to move it because it's following a similar sentiment. Like you pointed out, it doesn't break up the flow. Uh, I like it where it is. And I actually, I personally think it's original. I don't know that, I don't know that it demonstrates enough to be, parallel to any sort of agenda that one would insert into first timothy 2 because first timothy 2 i don't think reads has any sort of agenda ag against women glo you know universally anyway uh, no i i i, I, yeah. I agree with you the, the, i think it's more a matter of someone's reading of first timothy 2 would impact the insertion oh and decide so we need so there's so a bad reading of first timothy 2 leads to some scribal saying this needs to go somewhere in here and his yeah his community or maybe it's says, in the margin i mean there's there yeah. was someone e or ellis at southwestern seminary um argued that it was a marginal first corinthians 14 34 and 35 was a marginal text written by paul um uh when he sent out first corinthians where i'm like well that's far more speculative than even i'm willing to go um that later got inserted into the text and got moved around and stuff like that um, and so he thinks it's Paul writing the marginal note where I'm like, I don't know how you prove that. And it's an interesting article, but ultimately I think most people are like, yeah, yeah, sure. I'll tell you how you could go. I haven't read it, but I, I, I could tell you how I, I'm not opposed to the biblical authors, um, actually writing their own marginal notes to help the lector 
clarify questions that people may have about any particular portion, which they would be able to, which, you know, whoever the lector is that Paul commissioned to, to send the letter would also be anyone who explains or elaborates any content after its public reading. So if there was a marginal note there, it could have been a valid explanatory note. That's how that might have that's how that might happen. I don't know that for sure, because typically you would just think that the lector would not have his or her, uh, in the case of Phoebe, the letter to be read and then either within the margins or in, on a separate document, explanatory notes. You know, it's not yeah. really a big thing in the, in the ancient world because they would just, they would just know Phoebe would know, like, if someone had questions about Romans and, hey, is that about, um, you know, individuals being predestined before time? And no, that's not what that's, you know, Phoebe would set this, yeah. you know, and she wouldn't need notes to help her with that because they, they, you know, lectors are, that's what they do. You know, yeah. they're probably trained to do that. So, um, but I, I, that's one way I think it, it might be uh, if you were to go that route. I actually think that it's fine where it is. And I'm not saying that just because, oh, I'm ultra conservative and I need that to be that, that way. Um, I, I see Paul as an equal opportunity offender. I, I was satisfied with uh, Ben Witherington and N.T. Wright. They seem to be on this uh, very similar page that I think N.T. Wright actually affirms that it is probably an interpolation, although he, he, he's kind of where I am, where it's like, I think it's most likely an interpolation, but I think we can explain it um, on its own if it is original. I just basically force my complementarian friends to go, hey, you need to do the textual stuff before you just assume, oh, this is just the clear word of God and boom, we don't have to do any work. Yeah, that, that's not it. what I'm saying. I, yeah. I haven't done as much work as you on this, but I've, I've been satisfied to... But as far as in a reading of it anyway, it seems likely to me that this fits with some of the background of Delphi, you know, and the Oracle there and, and the way that people would communicate, um, you know, asking questions and getting mundane, you know, vague type of answers to it and stuff. Uh, and that, that sort of inquisitive interaction with whoever's doing the pro prophecy that would carry over and these women would be inquiring and and this is just an instructional note but I, that reading you know to say hey just shut up this this doesn't work like that works so ask uh, ladies just ask your husbands if because in this particular instance in corinth it might be that doesn't mean that that's the because we don't find this discussion in a lot of it's not like this is you know it, if this was happening, it could be men doing this kind of thing in, in some other location, you know, so it just happened to be women that he's picking on since Paul isn't egalitarian. He didn't have a problem picking on women just as much as he didn't have a problem picking on win, men. So sorry, ladies, part of egalitarianism is you get dumped on too. And so I see that just, just because it's about women, we shouldn't treat it any differently if, if, if it were about men. That's the whole point here. Yeah. You know, and so that's why Paul has no problem calling out these women if they're being noisy and say, hey, just this doesn't work like it works in your former life. So ask your husband at home, um, you know, is it proper to speak in church? Now, that can't be universal because women are speaking since chapter 11. He's talking about women who speak, you know, in church and prophesying and stuff. So we know that's not a blanket statement that this and of course, no one believes that anyway, because go to any church, complementarian church. 
and they don't push that to mean no speaking in church at all. Yeah, know? they they interpret it as to mean no elders, which I'm like, I don't see that in the text. Yeah, like, that's nowhere. That that's not anywhere. That's I don't. I've never heard a complementarian say that one, but that, I have in, in personal correspondence with like in verbal in like conversation oh, oh, with okay. them. They'll they'll kind of go, well, this isn't as clear as I'd like it to be with like say one Timothy two, where I'm like, oh, we're gonna have fun when we talk about. Is a proper woman but, speak in the church in the role of an elder? That's kind of how it. Because they, they, it's kind of that idea, yeah. I, 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 most, well, I've heard enough complementarians basically, yeah, 1 Corinthians 14, you know, we don't need that verse to kind of make the point we, we want to make. And I'm like, well, sure, but you have enough people basically saying, no, it's, it's, it, it supports this thing. I'm like, right. I, I don't see any, where's, where's that in the context? I mean, to the point you were making too, I, I think, um, I mean, Paul probably already implicitly tells people to be quiet because in verse 28 and i'm reading from the common english bible um however if there's no interpreter then they should keep quiet in the meeting well that Im uh, implies everyone should be quiet you know yeah. um and all that sort of stuff when you meet together in verse 26 each one has a psalm a teaching an actual you know that's it that's that's in one timothy too you know a teaching yeah. a revelation a tongue or interpretation all these things must be done to build up the church and so basically if this is original and i'm willing to grant for the sake of argument that it's original um all Paul is basically doing is, and this, of course, I think has bearing on the 1 Timothy text, because this is clearly about husband and wives. And that, of course, is a live, live debate in 1 Timothy 2, or at least 1 Timothy, uh, the section under conversation. Um, but the fact that he basically just tells uh, the, the women who are apparently uneducated coming in from Delphi, and, who, and we also need to remember, too, Christianity was seen as a, an emancipatory religion by pagans. Because yeah. why are you giving why are you giving credibility to women? So, for example, First um, Corinthians eleven, people love to say you know male headship, and I'm like I don't see that anywhere in the passage. I see um, an order to uh, how we worship and prophesy. Yeah. You know, neither one has preeminence over the other because all things come from God and all this sort of stuff. You know, um, but women were in given in Christianity a special status uh, that they didn't possess previously in secular or pagan culture. And when you're given the spirit and you're told that you too can prophesy, you too have the freedom in Christ to lead and to worship and to do all these things and as full participants in the body, because there are, there are many members in the body and all that sort of stuff. And there's no subordination mentioned in any of that sort of stuff with the spirit and his Paul's pneumatic discourse. You might being a well-raised, being a kid as a, as a new dad, um, you might recognize that when you get your first taste of sugar, all you want are pixie sticks. Yeah. And sometimes it's very easy to go overboard on the pixie sticks. And that doesn't mean pixie sticks are wrong or that you're a sinful person and should, uh, should never listen and never speak up or never have a voice or never lead or anything. But it does mean maybe um, your freedom is a little overboard and you basically jump the shark and you need to basically be reined in by people that love you and care for you. So right. too, I think the, the, uh, the, what, people call the pneumatic women in first Corinthians. And so I think that's what, if this is original, Paul is basically, all right, hold up, hold up. Like too strong, like this for, for the sake of go, go and learn. That's the whole point. Go, yeah. go ask your husbands at home. Um, this, we're not turning church into a massive Q and a session where everyone's on pixie sticks and arguing right. and fighting. Now that is the one that I'm most convinced of uh, as far as it being original, but there is another explanation that it is original in the sense that, it is um, a quotation or, 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 you know, slogan of the Corinthians. Right. That 34 and 35, it, it, which we find slogans all throughout this 
passage. Yeah, for, for example, I'll, yeah. I'll read one to you. Uh, and this, this is earlier in the past, earlier, uh, but this is 1 Corinthians 7. Paul says, now about what you wrote, and the uh, CEB puts it in quotes so we don't miss it. It's good for a man not to have sex with a woman or to touch a woman. And then Paul responds to the quotation. We know that's a quotation because Paul literally says in the next few verses, um, no, y'all doing the nasty together is great and holy and all that sort of stuff. Just make sure you do it in mutually submissive ways that not authoritarian and all that sort of stuff. And so, yeah. yeah, Talk about husbands and wives. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And her body ain't hers and your body ain't yours, but your body's hers and her body's yours. Yeah. Yeah, The parallelism is so simple. It's almost right. so so revolutionarily simple. Or everything is permissible is a yes. quotation. Things like that. So we know that happens. And when you when you see something that seems out of place, it seems possible that that could be also um, in, in uh, a, a quotation or a slogan of the Corinthians. And the merits to the... I don't like it because I like the idea of Paul being a jerk to women because he's a jerk to men all the time and because I want him to be an egalitarian, I want him to be a jerk to women too. But th- there is some things to commend itself to the slogan reading. Um, The women are to keep silent in churches for they are not permitted to speak, but are uh, to subject themselves just as the law also says. Well, um, where is that in Torah specifically? Um, My favorite thing John Golden Gay ever told me was the Old Testament does not subject women to men. You have to go to the New Testament for that. And I'm like, Thanks, John. That I was—he was my priest at while I was at Fuller, and he's like, yeah. y- "Y'all have to deal with that. We don't have to deal with that." And I'm like, "You have to deal with genocide allegations. Like, I'll—I'll I'll deal with this. You, y'all go." To, and he thought that was funny, but yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is improper for a woman to speak in church. End of slogan. Paul's retort. Was it from you, meaning the men who are making this claim that the word of God went, uh, uh, that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only, meaning men? Right. That's one way that people do it. I don't. I don't think that's as convincing as the the one that we just offered um, a minute ago. But I, I think there's, there, there, you know, I think that that's still more likely than the women should shut up permanently. And then you have to go reread First uh, Corinthians 11 in light of this, you know. Yeah, where Paul assumes women are participating in prophetic utterances and discourse and leadership and all that. Uh, and there's no, I mean, people love to talk about headship there, but I'm just like, look, if there is a form of headship, it's the woman's headship who has exercises authority over her own head, meaning she has self-authority to prophesy and the men don't right. have the right to tell her what she can or can't do. And also likewise, the women can't tell the men what to do, but everything needs to be done with respect to cultural decency. Yeah, That's prophesy involves speaking, by the way, and it involves- uh, No, it, it involves interpretive dance, Jonathan. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, well, you're actually not that bad at it compared to what I would look like if I tried that. That's about the extent of my coffee, so I will not be doing that again. <laughs> there you go. Well, darn. My my our our patron money is just going to start going down after that. If you yeah, lots of one dollar patrons, I'm assuming. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, but yeah, prophecy requires actually speaking in church. So and women are doing that. They have the authority to do that, and they have a sign of authority over their own. And head. it's authoritative speaking. Prophecy is yeah. an authoritative. Sp- prof- biblical prophecy. There is false prophecy and all that, but prophecy is 
authoritative speaking, literally the word, there's nothing more authoritative than the, thus say the Lord or thus say the word right. of the Lord. It's like, right. you know, that'll, your grandma says that to you, you shut up and you do it. Yeah. And even if you're a cessationist, you're not a cessationist with respect to the first century Corinthian church that they were doing it. Even if you don't <laughs> They certainly weren't cessationists. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> even if, even if women shouldn't be doing that now, cause you don't believe anyone should be doing that now, which I'm not a cessationist, but they're not, and they're speaking and they're, they're speaking. These women are speaking authoritatively in church. Uh, are the men supposed to flee and run uh, so that they don't accidentally learn something from these women who are speaking authoritatively? Or are you having a problem with your categories here? And I think that's, that's the issue there because you can't get around what prophecy is. Mm-hmm. Uh, should, you know, if it is the spirit gifted gift of prophecy that women are giving that's authoritative from the spirit, um, whether or not you believe that happens now, that's what that was going on then. And that's why, that's the very reason you want to say as a, as a, as a stationist, why it doesn't happen now, because prophecy carries that weight. That's one mm-hmm. of their arguments against it. So if women are giving this stuff that carries that weight and men are hearing it, they might accidentally learn something, which puts them in violation with the text we're going to look at next. Right. I mean, cause they yeah. are, they, they could teach them. Now those prophecies aren't written and, you, and the argument is, well, we have scripture now. We don't need uh, the gift of prophecy to be active, which I don't know. Anyway, we'll, we'll tackle that whole thing on cessationism sometime. But this works, you know, cessationism and complementarianism often go hand to hand, by the way. But they, run it, but they create a problem here with their own argumentation. Because you have women speaking authoritatively in church where men who did not know something prior may learn something from what these women are prophesying. If they're, if they're giving information that some man in the congregation did not know, that is learning. So. Well, and, and additionally too, you've, you run into the risk or you run the risk of, oh, maybe a better way of saying it is this. We, as evangelical Christians, broadly conceived, people who, take, well, people who take the Bible seriously and try to live by it. There we go. Yeah, I'm um, not even, you, you evangelicals, don't say, don't, don't be we and me into this. You're more conservative than I am. You're an evangelical, but no, we've got, they don't yes, like me. Uh, if they don't like you, I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, point being, just because they hate you doesn't mean that they, you know, put, they hate you because you are an comment, comment in the chat below. Who do you hate more, Nick or Jonathan? I, I think, I, I think you, uh, you at least have the sassiness to get away with the stuff. Me, people think I'm serious half the time. Yeah. Uh, but point being, Christians who care about the Bible will do this thing where we go, um, el- uh, this, this, and this, these titles, these modern titles, you know, pastor who basically functions like a CEO. I mean, here, at least in Southern California, the yeah. pastor is basically a glorified CEO who occasionally gives a motivational speech once a, once a week for like 30 minutes. Um, not at my church, but at many, most churches down here. Um, there is something to be said about if you're looking for a principle in the biblical text to apply to the modern day, how does this work? And my th- thing is, Biblical prophecy in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 and other texts is probably the closest equivalent we have to preaching. Yeah. Prophecy is not the equivalent of preaching. I'm not making that claim because they are very, I mean, how we do things now is very different. I mean, the whole concept of the modern church is so different from Paul. Paul would look at the modern church and be like, wow, y'all have internet and air conditioning and no one's 
swinging swords at your neck. Like, yeah. okay, this is great. I don't know if it's church, but this is great. You know, mm -hmm. all that sort of stuff. Um, if the closest parallel we have is preaching because it's the word of the Lord, it's given to people, it's for the edification of the body. And I think the closest re referent we have, if we're taking the principle, is, pre is prophecy is a formal dynamic equivalent to modern day preaching. And if that's true, and I think that's an eminently defensible view, then women can do that too, because Paul right. tells us they are. If a woman prays or prophesies, she's to do it with respect to how she uh, ex how, how she presents herself with her own authority, meaning her authority over her own body dictates how she presents herself. She has the agency to prophesy and to do all this and the authority to do it, but she is also required to respect the culture she is working in. And that applies to the men as well. Men are told to res you know, respect their own heads and stuff like that and perspectives right. of it. So, so to sum up, you say interpolation, I say no, but you say if it isn't interpolation, you think the best reading is the same that I think the best reading is, is just uh, hangovers from pagan uh, methods of prophesying that's causing a little bit of disruption that happens to be women. So even well, also the pneumatic women who just yeah. discovered the spirit <laughs> where the spirit is there is freedom and sometimes freedom can be like sugar yeah so you think you think you think that's the likely reading even even if it's not original to paul that's still the most likely reading i think that's if it is original that is the most likely reading paul intended to communicate uh if, but i don't think it's original to the text but so whoever I, in, whoever inserted it is that the likely reading or is it they had a social agenda that's inserted i mean it's more i mean given uh, ancient conceptions of gender and women and their inferiority, I think it's probably a social agenda too. Um, but if it's original to the text, I, I think it makes sense in how Paul would have used it. But if it's a later insertion, I find it very difficult to believe that there is uh, an egalitarian scribe in the fourth century, uh, 400 years removed from Paul's own egalitarian ecclesiology and pneumatology. I find it a little more difficult to believe, especially given how church fathers uh, had views of women and stuff like that. So many of them, yeah. Um, oh, at least when the, I should say, the way they thought was very, very patriarchal. How they responded to actual women like Junia or Phoebe, they were like, wow, these incredible women, these women who are apostles yeah. and prophets, they're, they're incredible. They shouldn't be doing it now, or they don't do it now, or we don't let them do that now. Hence my point. But they were incredible and they were yeah. great at that time. And I'm kind of like, take what you can get with the church fathers, I yeah. guess. So I'm 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 uh I'm fine with it being uh, original to Paul. I'm fine with him dressing down women. He certainly gives men plenty to, you know, uh, get wrapped around the neck with. So it's fine. Um, but as I I uh, don't think that it really impacts the complementarian egalitarian debate as much as. The text we're going to go to now, which is First Timothy chapter two. Now, at first glance, people think that this is the slam dunk against um, uh, the, the egalitarian position. That because of how you read this text, you can re—it's going to affect how you understand every single thing in the New Testament, if not the Old Testament as well, from Genesis yeah. to the. Uh, to the pastorals okay so would that any other would that any text any single text of any pet doctrine you or i might have had that sort of authority yeah exactly so um but that's just the john three sixteen bam calvinism is over in one verse mentality yeah. well 
this, you know, um, first Timothy two twelve doesn't slam dunk really anything, but let's, let's, let's read it. Um, actually we'll go back to eight just so that people know that Paul is saying something to men. Uh, therefore I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath or dissension. How well does men do that in church and Baptist circles? How well do they do that during sporting events? Yeah, there you go. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves uh, with proper clothing, uh, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold and pearls or costly garments, but rather uh, by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Interesting, he says, uh, likewise, or in similar fashion, you know. What I just said, carry that with you. Right, about no wrath, dissension, lifting holy hands in prayer, which means you can conversely suggest that men shouldn't be immodest in church either. Right? Uh, well, or is he saying... Be, there goes my string bikini right, days at church. Men, don't be wearing Speedos at church, right? Th that, that principle there that's kind of connective to the previous verse to men for women about modesty now granted men aren't going to braid their hair but he is addressing women but he's he's connecting these he's connecting eight and nine it's a corrective instructive text here right yeah and yeah. and so this isn't oh well women can be as angry as they want to be in church and keep the you know not pray with pray with all kinds of wrath no it doesn't work and and and, and this is kind of important when you when you look at the, a universal principle you want to draw from this text people draw the wrong universal principle when they try to universalize the principle here okay but rather by means of good works as proper for uh women making a claim to godliness a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness again i'm reading the nasb um but i do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man but to remain quiet for it is Adam who was created first and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But a woman will be preserved through the childbearing, uh, if they continue, or through the bearing of children, if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. There are so many things going on, starting in verse 12 from a hopox legomenon all the way to what does this mean to be saved? Is it proper to read that bearing of children, like they'll be delivered from uh, the dangers of childbirth in light of why women would pray to, was it Aphrodite and others about safe delivery of children? Artemis, the Artemis. Artemis, yeah, 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 sorry, Artemis. And um, what is this business about um, Authentane? You know, how do you... Yeah. That's it, the only place anywhere in the Bible, um, what, you know, is saved me, you know, delivered from the childbirth as an echo to the uh, Proangelion in Genesis uh, 3, meaning is, is this Christology here because of the childbearing, is that meaning the, 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 the crushing of the serpent there? Uh, because there is obviously an Adam and Eve echo here. 
Yeah. That takes you back to the creation account of created first and then Eve, you know, Adam first and then Eve. Of course, it also echoes any sort of later traditions about that story that's popular within the cultural milieu of the time that it would draw attention to, not merely just the creed. Because there's not a lot of Adam and Eve to be known from the first opening chapters of Genesis. So there's also what people have thought about Adam and Eve since in the theological development all the way through the second temple period and the traditions that have arisen about there, you've got to do that sort of intertextual analysis. What does the original text and later texts all have to inform Paul's thinking when he references Adam and Eve? You've got that to deal with. You've got... um, you have the question of, is this a husband-wife relationship? Because it's the same word. Yeah, uh, yeah, that, that's for, right, too. That's another. And, you know, which moves it out of the realm of a church study or a building kind of concept that we have with, when it comes to church, at least as modern Christians. Uh, is this a husband-wife dispute? Uh, because it is indefinite. A man and a woman uh, or husband and wife. Uh, I'm not permitting a husband or a wife to do this. Or rather, I'm not permitting a wife to authentic uh, a husband or her husband would be inferred um you have to ask that question it's one of those things where when someone comes to me whoever they are complementary and egalitarian it goes the text is clear my first thought is there are eight or nine exegetical difficulties you have to have before you can even talk about the issue of women in leadership right. and the fact that we will quote and i've had this happen in the in the trinity group and soteriology 101 group some guy will just be like here's 1 timothy 2 12 what do you do with it i'm just like interpret it in a social rhetorical context like what what is it like this text is so difficult to translate and interpret on its own that I kind of look at people and go, all right, you need to start in chapter one, verse one. And not only that, go read at the book of Acts where it talks about the Artemis cult. Like that'll give you some kind of historical background. And I've done that with four or five people in the TCOM group and all that. And half the time it's like, well, I don't know what this has anything to do with it. I'm like, culture and history matter for interpretation. If Paul is writing to this place and he's already been there according to Acts, then he had a really bad time last time he was in the Artemis cult region in Ephesus. Like yeah. he, he does not like the Artemis cult. They tried to kill him, you know, and they tried to do all these sorts of things. And so it's one of those things uh, you can, no one should pick a Bible verse and go, ha, we win. Like you said, John three sixteen. I go, that is lazy theology. That's not even theology. That's just lazy. And it, it applies to everyone. Like that includes myself. That includes, we all do it. But um I, I, additionally to what you were saying, I would point out to the, uh, the reason Paul is writing is he's urging Timothy in chapter one, verse three, when, uh, when he went into Macedonia to remain in Ephesus, so he may command uh, certain people not to teach any false doctrine or any different doctrine. Uh, and that's the same word group we see for teaching in 1 Timothy 2.12. Uh, it's a compound word, but it's it's the same sort of word group. Uh, Nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than uh, advancing God's work or the stewardship of God that's by faith. And then you keep going and reading certain persons by swerving from these, that is, you know, pure heart, good conscience, or uh, in a sincere faith, have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so, uh, or, or rather through their competent assert. I'm reading from the Greek and I'm, I'm translating as I go. I um, mean, yeah. stuff like that. So my first thought is, okay, people are teaching false things and these people are in ignorance. I mean, Paul literally and I think Paul wrote the pastorals, as I said, um, you just straight up have not understanding 
they are they do not understand what they're saying these people are deceived and they're teaching false things and you keep going and reading until the end of the chapter chapter one uh, you have uh, this is okay holding on to faith and a good conscience by rejecting this again so people have rejected this some have made shipwreck of their faith among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander and my first thought is he's actually naming the guys who probably propagate actually introduce this false teaching uh, you don't name and it's one of those things that he straight up names them and I just find that to be so interesting I mean he's handed over to Satan so they might be taught not to blaspheme and so it's like, okay, if we take a step back and we look at the bigger picture, Paul has dealt with the uh, root of the false teaching, Alexander and Hymenaeus. He's kicked them out of the church or handed them over to Satan probably is, you know, all that sort of stuff. And they introduced all this sort of heretical teaching, gene endless genealogies, myths, speculations. That sounds like Artemis. You know, that's kind of the Artesian cult, you know? And then the question is in chapter two, what is Paul doing? He is correcting the root of what was planted. And that includes women who were deceived. And so it's one of those things, if we just read the basic literary context, uh, Paul, is Paul tells us why he's writing it. People are disseminating false teaching and it needs to be addressed. And so when we come to 1 Timothy 2.12, we think, oh, women can't be pastors. And I'm like, that has nothing to do with the literary context of 1 Timothy and the pastoral epistles at large. And that's something I think we really need to take seriously. It's actually right. reading the pastorals without that kind of mindset. Right. If you're if if you come to this text with a question, can women preach in church or be pastors? Let, let's not give let's not give anyone that. People already come to this text with a conclusion in mind, and that applies to everyone. Yeah, but I mean, if this that's is the, one of those texts. Yeah, but if if they're coming to answer that question from their perspective. Oh, I see. I'm sorry. Yeah, they're going to jump yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. They're going to say, "But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over man, but to remain quiet." That answers the question, women aren't allowed to uh, be pastors, which is, uh, okay, this, it says, uh, and because it talks about Adam and Eve, that means it's universal for all times and all places. The occasion in Timothy doesn't, uh, of First Timothy and its situatedness in Ephesus and what's going on there in the culture has, does not, because he talks about Adam and Eve, therefore it, it, it goes beyond this situation to everybody for all of human history. Yeah, tell that to the Romans and to the Corinthians and the Galatians who didn't have the pleasure of the copy and paste email that uh, Timothy would have sent them. <laughs> By the way, uh, here's the, the mandate on all this. It's like, we yeah. forget that these things are ad hoc documents and I'm not negating uh, their, their relevance, but I'm pointing out that the pastoral epistles most likely are the last thing to be written by Paul or authored yeah. by Paul. It's not as if Phoebe or Priscilla or Junia or Andronicus or Clement or all of them and all the other material had this sort of teaching because yeah. they didn't. And so either Paul is creating something new, which seems weird to me, or Paul is being occasional with what he's doing that applies to a certain situation in Ephesus. But it's yes. not as if we can just copy and paste and throw that over to the Romans. Well, yes, but I do, I do agree that it is specific to the situation here, but I also think that there is a universal principle in yes, this I, text yeah. that can be applied. Um, and I think it can be applied to men and women. Uh, but for the softer complementarians, they will say, they will point out to things like this idea of exercise authority over, and they'll point to teaching, meaning a specific 
understanding of the teaching as the apostolic deposit. So they would say women, women don't get to determine what the doctrine of the, of the church is, uh, assuming, you know, every church assumes that their doctrine is the doctrine of the apostles. So they, they take a narrow understanding of teach here. And I, I do think there is maybe some warrant for that understanding of teach. I just don't think that they're, whatever they jump to from there follows in the universal compliment, soft complementarian argument. But I do think that you can narrowly, you, you, can, you can see uh, what Paul means by teach here in a narrower sense, not just like you can't go teach math in, in church or whatever, you know, that, or even just explain some sort of passage that some man may have a hard time understanding. I do think that they might have a, a point about they're reading it narrowly as the apostolic deposit teaching. Um, I think I mean, that just inadvertently goes the the basically i think that interpretation is beholden to the early catholicism of the pastorals and that involves reading them in light of second century christianity which actually would place them as second century documents like around the time of like the 120 that's when the standard critical reading is um the apostolic deposit kind of idea which i just kind of look at and go one i don't think that uh, uh didasco uh the, to, to teach yeah. carries that kind of weight just intrinsically or even contextually and i think a lot of people make a huge deal out of words being negative or positive and by nature. And I'm just kind of yeah. like, a word is a word in relation to other words. There's no such thing as a, a word having a universal meaning in the sense of a negative or a positive thing. And uh, I think- I don't dismiss that. I don't, of course, I'm not going to accept a, a late date on this in, in, in the second century. I, I, there was a guy who wrote a, I, I can't even remember his name now, but it's a brief book. Um, and I think uh, Michael Bird wrote a brief book in this particular series and his had a title about, you know, Bobby cuts and all, or, you know, bossy house or something, some weird title. It's a very Mike, very Mike Bird title. Yeah. Right. But there was another guy who wrote in that same series and I, I, you know, he kind of took this soft complimentarian that this, you know, this doesn't mean any kind of teaching at all, but he, he's the one who made the case for that narrow i can't remember his name you know a gazillion books uh i probably should have looked it up before i but i, I just thought of it but i'm trying to go through for everybody the other sides readings Fair enough. From, okay from i'll the, be quiet from the hard to the to the soft no i mean i want to hear your objections to that because i read it and i thought yeah there might be something to this i'm not committed to it but i was like i thought that maybe he had a case not about well women can't you know women can do x y but not z they can do everything but z that's kind of the soft because the teaching here they can't teach this specific um you know have control over the the doctrinal understanding of the apostolic deposit teaching i thought maybe there's something to that meaning of teaching even if i didn't buy his application of this passage and his overall exegesis but you're saying no you don't buy that for other reasons i, I don't buy it just because it places an undue amount of weight on it, it's it's essentially theological freight that's tied to a word. Okay. And I, I don't, I really, and this is a gift and a curse, I guess, for me, I really bristle at that sort of thing. Um, I don't think, I mean, if we want to look at, you know, certain people not to teach any other, any other doctrine or yeah. uh, wanting to be teachers of the law, that's not language of an apostolic deposit or anything like that. I mean, um, all the other uses of Didasco and, and the pastorals, um, you know, an ability, for example, um, I'll pull up this one text. Um, do, 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 do. Um, 
It's one of those things uh, who are, uh, in, you know, in the thing, in one t second Timothy two, two, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust reliable people who will be qualified to teach others. That's not the app. That's not the language we would expect of apostolic deposit. I, I think it's, and, and it also seems to assume there's kind of this encodedness to early Christian theology as it, and it's kind of like, it almost feels like here, here it is. Here's everything you'll need to know. Like here, here it is, you know? And I, I don't think that makes sense of uh, uh, theology in an oral tradition context or in a missional context. Uh, I don't think that, and I, I suppose I just don't buy the concept of Didasco bearing that sort of theological freight. And it's not clear to me that that's even the case in 1 Timothy 12, because there's no, he's not talking about doctrine there. Uh, at least it's not obvious to me, um, because you have to deal with how Didaskane and Authentane function together. Uh, and it, it's like, you know, a woman should learn. Okay. But are we talking about her not being able to learn how to teach false? It, like, it, it just doesn't make sense contextually for me. It doesn't, it, it's not a natural reading of the text for me. If someone wants to read uh, the case though, it's John Dixon's hearing her voice. Yes, that's it. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. don't get me wrong. I, I appreciate the fact that he's moved the complementarians closer to egalitarianism. I, I think his book in that sense is quite great because it basically puts John Piper in a corner and says, yeah, 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 that's, that's nice, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and I'm you're happy. Not, and I'm, yeah, but I don't buy his, yeah. His understanding of trying to fit a technical meaning in this instance of teaching is. You, you yeah, I, I think it is a Because that seems to be what he hangs his case on, you know, so it's like women yeah. can talk about everything else, you know, but yeah, I mean, that, that might, that might be, inventing a solution to solve a problem that you don't want to solve completely well i don't think there's it's a it's i don't think that's the, that's the issue of the pastorals i don't think that's the problem i think the problem is false teaching and heresy and all the sort of blasphemy and not and nonsense that's being disseminated i yeah. don't think it's you know uh i mean the, the women are told to learn i mean verse 11 that's the most radical part of the pastorals everyone just kind of jumps over the the only imperative in the entire discourse at least according to the women text is that a woman is to learn in a certain posture and submissionness or quietness or something like that and that's in the imperative that's the closest thing you get to an actual like command in the passage the women are to learn yeah and the whole point is um are they to learn the apostolic tradition but not teach it that's absurd like jew, jew like jewish conceptions of 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 teaching and i did a huge word study on on that language for teaching uh and it, I, I delivered a paper at a conference on this where i was like a lot of instances where this word is used, it implies that the learner will therefore live it out and also disseminate it. And Sirach straight up says it before you teach, you got to learn. And yeah. that's a Jewish axiom. That's, that's how you, that's, that's just basic life in order, in, in order to live Torah and teach Torah, you have to learn Torah, which means you shut up and you listen to what's being taught to you. In this case, the women are clearly the ones deceived and the ones needing the reprimand. And I don't think that's, and that all that's that similar me, to my my it just so happens to be that in this instance of correction it's women same similar to what i was saying about first corinthians 14 it's just in this instance it's women that 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 need to uh learn which learning by implication so that you could could po potentially teach and of course um philip Payne he makes the case about grammar about th this should be i'm not now and how that incorrective it should be translated i am not now permitting uh right. and how in corrective context that never ever ever means number one anything universal but number two and most importantly it doesn't mean anything permanent 
Well, yeah, I mean, it, it makes best sense, sense as a temporary prohibition because I don't think um, Timothy is like, oh, I got to tell Junia. I, I got to tell Junia she's got to, she can't do this. You know, it's yeah. like, like, no, it's, it's a, it's a localized problem because you don't see this sort of problem uh, in Galatians, you know, at least in the instance of women being the recipients of false teaching specifically, like the closest you get is first Corinthians, but that's the pneumatic women, which is contextually different because Paul likes, seems to like the way they do church there. He just wants them to be respectable about it here. It's a little more structured, a little more, I would say householdy. And yeah. I, that, that lets you know what I think about the relationship. If it's husband and wife, that's where I tend to lean. And Witherington, he hangs a lot on, on that, on that reading of not now permitting. Um, he does. Yeah. And he says that is how it should be translated. And he thinks that that case has been made and that it's, you know, when he gives his translation of the Greek, he defends it and then refers to other larger works just on that issue you know in the journals and stuff yeah but, for, for, oh, yeah sorry go ahead so um that not now permitting lends i think good uh evidence against because no matter what it's present act it's not you know it's it, it um it's so even if you didn't translate it that way if you're looking at the greek it seems to carry that uh tense so you're 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 stuck with the fact that it doesn't seem like in corrective context every time that is used that it is a permanent for all time injunction at all for example um just to give some some meat to this you have the parallel of uh because of your hardness of heart parallel in the synoptic gospels um i'll, I'll use the matthew version um Jesus, he said to them, or Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Hati, you know, because or for this reason, your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you uh, to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And so we see permission there or allowed, it's the same word, same verb. We see that this is not a permanent universal binding prohibition. Jesus flat out said, it's because of Moses permitted you to do this, which implies from the beginning it wasn't so because up until Moses, you didn't like you had Adam and Eve and they weren't divorced. Right. And that gets back to the whole idea of equality in the Garden of Eden, uh, God making uh, male and female in his image, which doesn't is not how we modern people like to think because it's not philosophical, it's representation, or if we would say it's priesthood language, I would argue, which mm -hmm. means women and men together in the early garden were God's holy viceroys or priests. Um, and you get that also from the language of the side. Um, it's not rib, it's side, which often is used to describe holy sites, like the side of the holy Solomonic temple or God's holy mountain. Eve is taken from his side, implying a high view of the human person in terms of priestliness. And so that's, I think, an interesting argument as well, which means I, I would argue Genesis doesn't teach anything like complementarianism. Point being, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. That is not a universal thing. It was temporary until Jesus basically goes, from the beginning it wasn't so, and I say to you, as the one who wrote the law of Moses, basically, which is a nice little high Christology right there. Um, and then throughout, you know, Jesus gives people permission to go and bury their, their, their parents and their family and all that sort of stuff. And so it's, it's this word, this verb, epitrepo, is not, is nowhere I've seen to use to describe a universal binding exclusive prohibition on someone or a group even. So I just don't see any good evidence for that. And I think Witherington and Payne are, are right to point that out. Yeah. And as far as authentane and the haggles about that, um, 
you want to you want to kind of unpack that and some of its use because this is the only place anywhere in scripture it's a hapax legomena doesn't occur anywhere else and there's been a lot of hay made out of it so why don't you briefly summarize the hay and why you think that um it's you know why it doesn't favor the complementarian reading yeah um so Cynthia Westfall in the Journal for Greco-Roman Christianity and Judaism, I think is called, does a linguistic study of this word group. And she argues, and I think this is probably conclusive. Um, you do have people, and that's the thing, people will dispute something, but just because someone jumps up and down screaming and pulling out the hair doesn't mean they've refuted it. And that applies yeah. across the board. Uh, uh, Westfall argues that the past, that authenteo, the, the, the noun form, the infinitive is authentane, it's the infinitival yeah. form. So we're talking about authenteo, but um, she points out that you need to, because of the, the rarity of the word in the literature, you need to include the noun form of it, authentes, because you can, if you go off just what the verb is, you're going to miss out on how the word is used in noun form or verbal noun form or deverbal nouns or what they're called. Um, and she argues that her analysis suggests, and I'm just going to read the conclusion because I think it's prevalent my or positive my analysis suggests that the basic semantic concept of the word authenteo semantic concept meaning the range of meanings within the word how a word is used in context is can be described as the autonomous use or possession of unrestricted force is the autonomous use or possession of unrestricted force and so for example there's a problem in english where we where we go uh in greek uh dunamis right power or or ability um, doesn't mean explosives, you know, right. and, and, and when we hear authenteo, our first thought is, ah, authority, because they sound similar. The whole point is authentane, or rather authenteo and authentes and all of them, don't denote authority in the way we think of authority. For instance, and I, and I have an article coming out, or at least I submitted it an article, um, about Philo's use of authentes, the noun form, and that's Philo of Alexander is a very close parallel or a very close contemporary of Paul. And, that, and that's probably the, one of the closest parallels of the use of this word group that we have. It's also used in Wisdom of Solomon to describe parents who murder their children. So, you know, it's, it's clearly not a nice word, at least when it's applied uh, transitively, that is between persons, how people do this to each other or describe to this. So here's from Philo. And if someone wants the copy of the article, it's, I submitted it, we'll see if they accept it. Uh, this is my translation. Uh, there, and this, he's talking about, and there, there are certain parallels also throughout the passage of uh, mind and type and teaching and self-love, you know, uh, philautos and stuff like that, that Philo uses. But he says, therefore, anyone who loves oneself via the surname Cain, so he's talking about Cain and Abel, must learn that he has slaughtered the namesake of Abel his image, his individuality, the iconic image according to the type, not the archetype, not the family, not the outer form, which he expects to destroy, although they are living immortal creatures. Let anyone say to him, that person who is a self-lover, who acts in a certain way, um, oh, what have you done, oh, oh evil genius? Do you not think to slay the one who loves God's glory, that you not also dwell before God? Meaning, you acting in a certain unethical way uh, commit you to a certain eschatological outcome. And he says, you have become a murderer of yourself, authentes, having slain or killed by ambush, the only ability to have a, a blameless life. So Cain became a murderer of Abel, and it uses that exact same word group. 
that tells us, and it uses similar lexemes like to become um, and all those sorts of things, right? And the point is this word group seems to be used consistently across literature to describe either a master of someone like a master of a slave or a murderer of someone, someone killed or has uh, unrestricted force imposed upon them. This is not, it's not to say that is a negative word by nature, because the word, all words are, I would argue, largely neutral, depending on context. But in, in the context of how this word is used, it almost exclusively seems to refer to a disproportionate relationship between uh, dueling agents. And it also seems to imply that there is a sense of domination or control that's being utilized over another person or at the expense of another person. And so, Complementarians who say this word means to exercise authority in a positive or neutral way. Uh, one, that doesn't make sense of why Paul prohibits it. He's not prohibiting, why would he prohibit the positive use of authority? That doesn't make any sense. Paul's not in the, in the habit of uh, prohibiting positive things. And, that, and the fact that it's a prohibition means Paul wouldn't view it as positive anyway. Like right. that doesn't make any, any linguistic or contextual literary sense. But it seems to suggest- Well, they would say, you, yeah, but he's doing it in the case of women, that's why he's doing it. Right, but in the sense there, then they can't say it means a positive view of authority or even a neutral view of authority because Paul views that use of authority, you know, taking it as a use of authority as negative because he's prohibiting it. Well, for women. For women, yeah, but he still, but that proves that the word is not, new, is not neutral or yeah, positive. Yeah, and I so know, it's I'm, just, I'm arguing like a compliment. No, no, I, I know what you mean. And, but, but the whole point is um, when you have this word used in literary context where it refers to death, um, or to uh, the way a, a master treats a slave, um, you kind of go, okay, th this word, Paul's use of it here seems to suggest he's not permitting someone to act in an authoritarian manner, or I would translate it, the gloss as, to uh, control. Yeah. I think, it's a, I think it's, a, it's a controlling lexeme or a power lexeme. And Paul's basically saying you're not allowed to do that in the church. Yeah, so... so yeah, so, um, but the complementarians say, no, it's, it's coupled with teaching, uh, and these are both good things. This, the, the exercise authority, that's a good thing, um, even though there's, what you're saying, there's little data to suggest in context or in its meaning contemporaneous with Paul that it's a good thing. It always has, carries negative connotations, which makes sense why he would be treating it as a negative why he would prohibit it in the first place. Right. Uh, okay, so you, you're not by the, the complementarians, they just need to let go of this positive, positive. Uh, right, uh, it's, it's a, prohibition, a word. Prohibition of two positives. Yeah, it, it doesn't make any, it, the whole point of a prohibition is you're prohibiting someone from acting in a way that you perceive as negative. Uh, and the whole idea of teaching me carrying some sort of positive weight, one, that doesn't make sense because people are teaching negative things all over the place in the pastoral epistles using that same lexeme or a compound that includes that lexeme, that teaching lexeme. Right. And I just kind of go, you can teach negative things, you can teach positive things, but that is entirely contingent upon the literary context and the author's linguistic phenomena, how that author uses words. And here, Paul gives us no reason to think, oh, uh, this is a, I'm prohibiting someone from doing two positive things, because Paul would, wouldn't view them as positive things, because he's telling them not to do it. And so, uh, you know, uh, and the fact that we, we go to it and go, okay, we try to construct grammatical rules, 
right? To go, oh, this must mean uh, positive because everywhere else we see it's positive. I'm like, well, no, that's, that's, that's a massive assumption. And this, and so they, they go together. And I'm like, no, that if the closest thing grammatically you can say is that they are, they are coordinate things. So it's probably best to translate them in a way that reflects their kind of overlap, right? They're not two things over here. He's not to teach and to do this. It's like, that doesn't make any sense contextually because the whole point is the dissemination of material through false teaching that he's prohibiting. So it's best to see these two things as overlapping in terms of context to teach and in this same way to act as an authoritarian or to be controlling or something like that. They, they kind of speak yeah. together. Uh, some people have said to domineer or, or usurp. Uh, usurp, yeah. yeah. Those are, those uh, or even uh, the NIV goes with uh, assume authority. And I don't yeah. think that's right because I don't think uh, men have some, in, men or women have some intrinsic authority over the other person in terms of that sort of stuff. Um, and I don't think it's, it basically assumes leadership is masculine and women are trying to steal, you know, give me, give me your authority, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't make any sense um, to me in terms of context. It just, it assumes a lot that I don't see that's obvious in the context. So Adam and Eve, this whole scenario, the, the reading is, well, Adam's first, male priority, male, you know, women submit to men. Um, and that's how it goes with the church because women were deceived, not men. They fell in the, even though Adam gets the blame in Romans 5, for example. But uh, so what is with the evoking of the, this following that? you know why does why does the echo of adam and eve make sense here following verse 12 why does he go into that here in verse 13 what's wrong with the complementarian reading and how should they understand it well it's, it's a misreading of genesis i mean it's one of those things that the complementarian is right um then i would argue their reading of gen their reading of paul here has paul misreading genesis and I have a really big problem with that because I don't see any of these sort of complementarian things being taught in Genesis. Um, what I, and, and Luke Timothy Johnson, an eminent New Testament scholar, basically, he's not a complementarian at all, but he basically says, yeah, Paul misread Genesis because of, based on this sort of stuff. And I just kind of go, no, I, I think Paul knew his scriptures a little better than we know his scriptures. And I like to think a first century Jew knows a thing or two about the law. Um, sorry. Um, but basically you have the issue of eve and what does eve represent in the context well uh given that women are the recipients of false teaching because paul makes that clear in chapter five and following they're they're silly women basically is the kind of joke they're going from house to house teaching things they ought not to teach or ought not to to teach and so women were the ones uh, most impacted by the false teaching which assumes that they already had some sort of leadership role because they were continuing on with it you know but what happens here is that eve is given eve functions as adam functions adam explicitly functions as a type of the christ a type of christ and stuff like that in romans 5 eve in chap in second uh, corinthians 11 uh, paul says but i'm afraid that just as eve who was deceived by the serpent's cunning so her deception is brought up again um, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to christ and that's second corinthians eleven three. the whole church there is being deceived so we already understand deception is not a male or female thing it is something that happens to the best of us and oftentimes to the worst of us and it shows us that eve's 
of being deceived functions as a type to clarify what is happening to the local community or the local church. You are basically being deceived as Eve was deceived. And of course, the whole solution to that is found in, chapter, in verse 11 in 1 Timothy 2, right? Learn in a quiet manner before you go off and do all this. So evoking Eve uh, is basically Paul's way of doing biblical theology. He goes, here's an example of deception that has enormous ramifications, or we even might say cosmic ramifications, right? Eve was deceived and it led to the fall. And which is interesting because Paul elsewhere blames Adam for the fall in Romans 5. So it's not as if Eve is responsible for the fall exclusively, or even Adam is responsible for the fall exclusively. Yeah. And 2 Corinthians 11.3 gives precedent that Eve is not a, you know, an example that excludes men just by the evocation of it any more than Adam necessarily would exclude uh, women as, you know, uh, from the consequences of Adam's transgression. When you evoke Adam uh, as a, you know, that doesn't mean women are unaffected <laughs> by Adam's yeah. fall. It's and, figural. It's yeah, figural so Second Corinthians 11.3 operates that way. Now, interestingly, I, I think Craig Keener makes this point that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, nobody reads that to believe that it's a universal command, even though Paul appeals to the creation account there, too. Uh, you'd be surprised, but yeah. No, very few people do. But Yeah, very few are, people. Well, yeah. very, very few complementarians going to your typical Southern Baptist church are filled with women wearing scarves or hats. And uh, let's let's not rule out the you know the the rings and the the earrings and all that right, sort of right. stuff which are prohibited too right but 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 my point is if you can interpret an appeal to a creation order uh as universal then you should consistently wear head coverings well yeah uh there's also the issue too of um we don't hold men accountable for Adam's sin, but we're more than happy to go up oh, because Eve messed up. Let's throw all women out and do all that sort of stuff. And I'm just like, hermeneutically, that makes no sense to me. It's like right. Adam is blamed for the fall in Romans 5. Therefore, why would we trust men? Men are just like Adam. It's like we, we don't do the sort of hermeneutical gerrymandering that we're not willing to do with Adam and, and men. You know, we're not willing to, you know, it's like Adam can represent everyone, but Eve, mm, I don't know. That's, we have a problem with Eve representing all of, all of the church or something like that. And I just kind of Even go, though Paul has no problem in second Corinthians. Paul has no great. problem with it. Uh, yeah. and you're I, you're it's, deceived like Eve's deceived. Yeah. yeah the men, y'all are, yeah. you all are deceived like Eve was deceived. And I imagine yeah. that to, to men there being like, oh, that, that's sharp. It's like, well, yeah, that's, Paul doesn't care. Paul doesn't care about your feelings. I mean, right. I mean Paul does, I think in many instances, he's very like, Philemon, I think he's very affectionate and stuff like that, uh, but to a certain emancipatory point. Um, yeah. But yeah, so it's one of those things. I think Paul, what Paul is doing is, and, and I also object to not how you use it, but uh, the, the language of feel of creation order. I think it's, it's uh, again, it's, I hate to beat a dead horse, but it's theological freight. By that, they don't mean the creation account. They mean a sequence of creation that implies a hierarchical or patriarchal outcome or narrative. And I just kind of go, no. That's not what I see in Genesis, and that's what most Genesis commentators now don't see. I mean, you go from across the board, Genesis commentators, uh, at least people writing commentaries on Genesis, academics who are experts in Hebrew, they don't see it there. Um, <clears throat> but 
Um, what we mean to say is there is a creation narrative that Paul has in mind, but he does not imbue that creation narrative with patriarchalism. I don't see that taught in Genesis. And here I see Paul basically going, here, here is a compressed recount of the fall. Adam was formed first, then Eve. How that implies male headship or male preeminence is not clear to me because let's face it, um, we don't view the first as always having preeminence over the second. Sometimes the second has more preeminence over the first. And well, if you look at the history of the, the kings, it's rarely ever is it the uh, firstborn that becomes king. It's if you, yep. if you David, read it, King David. Yeah, if you go read it, second or secondborn or later, uh, it's the secondborn patriarchs. Um, you know, it's never this. Is it, you know, the the Bible undermines. Uh, primogenitor is that what it's called? The yeah. right of primogenitor, or whatever it is. Yeah, the Bible undermines that consistently. Very rarely in in the line of kings was it the firstborn, and if it ever was, it wasn't a long reign. So it's yeah. quite interesting, like that, that you can go through Isaac and Jacob. You know, and Paul makes this argument that Christ, is, so that he's the firstborn among many brothers. And then in chapter nine, he talks about how the promise of Abraham comes through uh, the secondborn patriarchs uh, as the the line of the promise that preserves Jesus being the firstborn. You know, or the preeminent. Um, so interesting how how those kind of dynamics come to play and how people think about them in different ways. I, I I'm with you. I don't necessarily think. Um, my older brother has preeminence over me, for example. But um, yeah, I don't know about sequence proving authority uh, necessarily. Now, as far as Eve being deceived, some people will elaborate on the narrative, that the narrative, the order in the narrative was Adam first, then Eve. And Eve was deceived uh, primarily because when she spoke with the serpent, she bungled the instructions that God had given Adam because she added to it mm -hmm. and the serpent somehow deceived her in the sense that he convinced her that, that uh, what she had been told was wrong. Now that was true in one sense, because what she said was not what Adam was told, you know, yeah. she, uh, cause she said more than what Adam was told. And then it was convinced that it wasn't going to kill her because she had been, she was wrong in what she was told and technically she was and technically they didn't kill her uh at least instantaneously right. so um that lends weight if you if you if you bring in the full echo and allusion to the whole narrative that is used to bring weight to the fact that the issue here is wrongly taught will wrongly repeat being taught you know yep. that's a subtext in the intertextual reading that you have to pull forth uh, from the narrative to which Paul appeals to, which is inescapable. So you, when you pull in all that, that also ties into what he's on about in chapter five that you had elaborated on earlier about the uh, decimation uh, uh, of all this false information um, being spread out there. So that that's the Adam and Eve. Now what's his business about being saved from the childbearing? Oh, before we get there, before we get there, there is another egalitarian reading that I'm not convinced of your mileage may vary, uh, that he is countering a false creation narrative. And he's, Oh yeah. The, the Kroger's right. Um, yeah. Kathy, and Kathy Krager. Yeah. That, 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 
people were being taught that Eve was created first and then Adam and Adam was deceived. And the reason why he's going into this is because he's trying to reverse that. I'm, I'm, I'm not convinced of that, but, but what do you think of that reading? Um, I think it's out of date. I, I think it's one of those, I think most egalitarian scholarship has been moved into the realm of, you know, the present active indicative of epitrepo, not in, uh, implying a universal prohibition. Uh, then uh, the contextually negative use of authenteo, uh, the, uh, the contextual analysis of teaching and all that sort of stuff. I, I think the appeal to, art, to, to that sort of stuff is just, one, I think, at the, I mean, if it, even if it is true, it's just unnecessary to explain the context. Yeah. Um, but two, I, I think it, it's a massive overread, um, and it seems reliant more on uh, ancient or much later ancient literature uh, that seems more it almost reads like fan fiction, like how the, the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas reads, you yeah. know, about Jesus. It reads like fan fiction. And I, I there are certain egalitarian readings that I, I just don't, I don't think are good. And I think that's just one of them. I mean, yeah. I, I'm willing to be convinced that it is a good reading, but at the end of the day, it doesn't affect my interpretation at all. All it does is tell me a little bit, maybe about the social context. But even then, I think I already agree with the idea of the impact of Artemis on the local economy and on the local church. Yeah, a recent scholar, and again, I forget his name, he was doing a comparative work with this passage with Z uh, Xenophon. Oh, Gary uh, something. Uh, a Gary H, I think. Yeah. But yeah, Xenophon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and I think he brought back around this idea, but I'm not, uh, I haven't read the work yet, but I think that he had brought back around this idea or put, breathed a little bit of new life into it. But I think he, I, I think he was really on about the, uh, the next thing about the childbearing. And what does it mean to be saved by the ch child? Is it just women in general bearing children? You'll be delivered. Don't need uh, uh, Artemis to, to save you because uh, in the sense of rescue you from the dangers of childbirth in the ancient world. Or would you say it's what Ben Witherington says uh, about it being a reference to Genesis chapter three in the Evangelion? I mean, I, I don't think that I'm going to steal one of Ben Witherington's juicier lines uh, that he ever uh, put on the internet. I don't think Paul believed in justification by faith through baby making. Right. Because if that is true, then this is the only place that he says it. And I'd love to see that taught in Romans one to four or five to eight or Galatians or Phil I'd love to see that actually taught somewhere in Paul. Yeah. Um, I, so no, I, I don't buy the idea of having babies somehow puts you on a higher spiritual plane. Although I mean, you talk to my wife about the experience. It's certainly, <laughs> she was certainly on some different she was certainly going through stuff I will never have the privilege of going through. And I use that with a wink. Um, she was a champ, by the way. That was, that was, I imagine she um, was. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I, I think, um, I think it's a massive overread to go uh, this, because it's not a verb uh, through, and it's a, a singular genitival noun. It, it doesn't mean, because childbearing makes it sound like there is kind of a verbal component. I mean, there is, there is a sense of a verbal component because you're giving birth to children, but it's not a true verb. Um, here, I would say something like, I think that it makes the best sense um, to say that um, Paul has, Paul, I think, is arguing that Christ is at the center of the entire Christian life. And that sounds like pseudo pious blather, but allow me to unpseudo pious blather it a bit. Um, there are phrases 
that are throughout the pastoral epistles, the, the faithful sayings or the, fa- or, uh, you know, pistos halagos, right? You know, the, the faithful sayings or the trustworthy statements, right? Yeah. And those are always connected with Christology. So in 1 Timothy 1, 14 and 15, and I'll just read from the NIV, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Uh, the saying is trustworthy, or here's a trustworthy worthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost or the worst sinner or something like that. So that trustworthy saying is connected to Christology, the Christ action, the Christ event. And that of course implies Christ came into the world implies a form of preexistence. It implies a sense of, we might even say if Christ preexisted and came into the world, then he was born. And that's standard Pauline theology, Galatians 4.4, 4. born under the law, born under the born, born from a woman, born under the law, just, just like everyone else. Um, and then Paul goes on to say in uh, 1 Timothy 3, um, 3, 1, which actually I think my, my wife is doing her doctoral work on, on 1 Timothy and other texts. Um, every time that faithful word is present, it apply, it's being applied to Christology. So if we read the context, uh, she, but women, actually that's a terrible translation, but she will be saved. So singular she will be saved through childbearing if they remain. So you have a shift there. If they remain in faith and love and holiness with mental soundness, um, the saying is trustworthy. And the question is, is the trustworthy saying connected to chapter three, verse one, you know, that if anyone aspires to be an overseer or whatever, or is it connected to 15? Because we, we put a break in between those two, you know, because of chapter right. breaks and verses. Um, grammatically and theologically and contextually, it makes best sense to tie pistos halagos with 2.15, the clause, uh, trustworthy statement, to 2.15 than it does to the elders. Because Paul, throughout the pastorals, ties that idiom to Christology. And if that's true, because there's nothing Christological about an overseer, like even the most insane person wouldn't go that far. So, which implies that the trustworthy statement applied to first to 215 suggests to me that Christology is in view and hence the childbirth. And of course you have the articular noun, you know, the childbirth, you know, stuff like that. And I don't know how, uh, and of course you have the, the salvation language from 115, you know, Christ came in the world to save sinners. And so that, you know, ties the salvation or liberation lexeme to uh, 115 to 215. Um, and you also have Christ as the, uh, the one mediator between God, uh, God, our Savior, you know, who desires all people to be saved. So salvation language again, and come to a knowledge of the truth where there's one God and one mediator between God and humankind, the human Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This now has been witnessed at the proper time. So I think taking 215 as Christological makes best sense of the theology of Paul, the context of the pastorals, and the immediate literary context as related to this various lexemes for salvation, and also that pistos halagos uh, idiom. So yeah, I, I, I'm with you, I, or I'm with Witherington. I think it very strongly refers to the childbirth, that is the birth of our Lord and Savior who came into the world to save sinners. I agree, uh, but I do want to check out some of that scholarship and see if there might be something to this whole, uh, whatever that guy's name, and now I'm bad with names and stuff, but whatever his name is that did that work comparing it to Xenophon, I do, I think he wants to talk about that, so I, I want to I want to check that out, and he may not, I don't know, I haven't, I haven't read it yet, but I think I saw a blurb about the book. Uh, speaking of books, uh, Bourgeois Babes, Bossy Wives, and Bobby Haircuts was the name of Michael Byrd's book in that same series with uh, John Dixon's Hearing Her Voice. So to wrap up, um, real quick, 
you're reading from 11 to 3 1a yes give it give me your reading from start to finish so that people can have some clarity of all the issues that have come up uh that we've, we've given all the interpretive options we've said which ones we do so i want to put it together for them put a bow on it so give them a brief uh walk through that passage from just start with verse 11 and go through uh 3 1a Verse 11 and 301 a Okay. Paul is correcting very obvious, very destructive heresies. And how Paul does that is addressing the women with the solution first. Learn with a reverence and a sense of quiet propriety because you are teaching things that are wrong. And then he goes on in verse 15, to, or rather verse 12 to say, uh, at this present time, because you are learning and also because you've been impacted by the false teaching, I'm not permitting you to act in a way that is controlling over other people, specifically a man or your husband. Rather, you are to remain in that quiet learning state. And he gives a reason for that that involves Adam and Eve and the sequence of deception and failure and concludes it with the Christology of Paul, with the Christology that is incarnational, that is preexistent, that is as high in the New Testament as you can find, and he attributes that to women. They will be saved, or she will be saved through that childbearing, that birth of Christ. And the, if these women also, if these women participate or continue in faith and love and holiness with mental soundness. So Paul is telling the women to learn and to be participants in the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, who gave himself for all people, so that they might be good missional teachers in how they interact with the world. And the whole goal is in 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, that they might be faithful people or trustworthy people. It's anthropos, not man language. It's inclusive language, anthropos, who are able to teach. And the whole point is correcting false teaching. The whole point is not putting women in a secondary place or any other place like that. And it is Paul basically saying, as Eve was deceived, and in this instance, I'm applying Eve to women, uh, as Eve was deceived, so too you've been deceived. But you can be saved from your deception through learning and by allegiance to the Christ who uh, was born from a woman. And I think Paul's view of women as mothers uh, gets often overlooked and demeaned because I think we live in a culture that devalues motherhood in some sense, at least. Uh, but Paul basically is saying that it is through a woman that Christ came into the world. And therefore, Christ and women are rather Christ's view of women and Paul's view of women reflect that incarnational reality that women alongside men are full participants in the church without reticence or without partialism. So I think that's Paul's ultimate point if I'm going to put a theological spin on it. Yeah, I think that that's the reading that I accept as well. And I want to say that the universal application or principle is that just like uh, with women, this would apply to men, just like we would say men don't wear speedos in church even though it's only telling women to dress modestly here you know um the universal principle is if you don't know what you're talking about or are in need of correction you need to shut up and not teach whether you're a man or a woman until you have learned that's the universal principle would that would that that universal principle be implemented with a lot of these sex scandals going on in the church yes i mean think about it don't assume authority or control over another person can certainly be applied to men. I mean, in many of these instances. So while Paul is gender specific here, he's not gender exclusive. 
because men, just like women, can be deceived or even worse, be filmed with all sorts of sinful, evil, horrific things that yeah, they Corinthians are willing to use. Three. Yeah, uh, which Paul applies even uh, to men being deceived well. So yes, there is a universal application. It's just 100%. that we believe that the complementarians have made the wrong one because they don't have I don't see this is the benefit of the socio-rhetorical analysis and looking at the inner texture, then going through the intertexture, then going through the socio-cultural texture, then going through the ideological texture, which if you're trying to un understand Paul's ideology and the ideology of his original audience, and then you got to think about your own ideological cards, where are those all at, and put those in conversation. The wider Paul, the reason why egalitarians go to the wider Paul and then narrow down to here and say, look how Paul reacts to women everywhere else, is because we have to get a framework for Paul's ideological viewpoint to both men and women, instead of finding one passage to retcon it on everything that he's written before he even wrote this, you know, like his entire uh, corpus prior to First Timothy. So you look at the, uh, that, and then you do look at what, what you closed off with, the theological point, we, we would call it the sacred texture. Um, and that, that, that gives you some things. And then when we talk about a universal principle, that's what uh, Brosin added to the Robbins model, the homiletic texture is learn before you teach and don't jack up uh, the, the proper uh, understanding of the gospel, don't, uh, the proper understanding of text, including this one, by the way. Uh, you know, learn before you teach and don't be domineering or usurping authority that you have no right to because you don't know what you're talking about. Like these it's, women it's, spreading this from house to house. Yeah. Well, it's the equivalent of, but nobody knows that day or, the, or when that day or hour will come. Not the heavenly angels, not the son, only the father knows. And then going, ah, we can apply that to Philippians 2. We can apply that to Colossians 1. We can apply that to Hebrews 1 and 2. And all the pre-existent texts and go, nope, the, the son is, is uh, less than the father, hence Arianism. Right. We don't do that with any other doctrines. But for right. some reason, we're content to do that with 1 Timothy 2.12. And I go, we need a bigger theological framework, and we need to do the actual work of integrating these texts versus finding the text we like. And that includes the egalitarians with Galatians 3.28 and the complementarians who do this with 1 Timothy 2.12. Right. And, and so, because, and we, like you said, we'll call out egalitarians who try to uh, 